Psalm 104. Psalm 104. So if you'd turn there uh, with me. And Psalm 104 is uh, what is called the creation hymn. There's about a handful of these psalms in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms. And essentially, a creation hymn uh, praises God for his glory in creating the earth and in sustaining the earth. Um, But it's more than that. And I hope we see this morning that our text is really about God's love for us and his desire to be known by us. Uh, So, uh, with that, um, I'm going to pray and then we'll read scripture. So, Psalm 104 uh, is our text. And so now, if you would, I invite you who are able to stand out of reverence for God's word. You may follow along in your own copy of God's word or it's also found there in the bulletin. Hear now the word of the Lord. Bless Yahweh, O my soul. O Yahweh, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of Yahweh are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted, in them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. You make darkness, and it is night, when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Yahweh, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with with creatures innumerable, living things, both great and both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, 
they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of Yahweh endure forever. May Yahweh rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to Yahweh as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in Yahweh. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless Yahweh, O my soul. Praise Yahweh. And you may be seated. I mentioned in the introduction that this psalm is ultimately about God's love, about God's offer of relationship. And I hope this morning that we see that offer and ultimately take hold of that offer. Because the thing is, uh, Christians, every Christian, uh, has this deep-seated desire to behold God. To behold God. It may wane in one season. It may wax in another. It may be uh, faint right now in your life. You may be feeling it strongly. But deep down, we all have this desire to behold God. And the thing is, he does reveal himself. Not just in his word, but daily he reveals himself, and it's all around us. The problem is our sight is dim. So we need continual vision correction. We need to be restored to 2020 uh, to see what God has put before us for what it really is. And so I'm going to be using this language of sight, of vision, because that's ultimately what this psalm is about God revealing himself to us that we might enjoy him. And that's the central idea that we're going to unpack this morning. God invites us to behold him in his creation. God invites us to behold him in his creation. And we'll see that God invites us to behold him in three ways. And those three ways are these. First, in the beauty of his creation. Second, in the provision of of his creation, and lastly, in the hope of creation. I'm just going to warn you, the first two points are the lengthy points, and uh, the last one will be uh, a touch shorter. So if you're sweating it after the first two points, uh, have <laughs> take hope. It, it, uh, it will come to an end. Um, our first point then, God invites us to behold him in the beauty of creation. God invites us to behold him in the beauty of creation. The psalmist's opening words we see in verse 1 are these, Bless Yahweh, O my soul. He's telling himself to worship God. And then he speaks directly to God. He says, O Yahweh, my God, you are very great. Now, whenever you tell someone they're great, they're amazing, you have to say why. You have to say what about them makes them great, or else it feels sort of cheap, right? You can't just go on saying, ugh, you're just the best, right? It's not going to work. You have to spell it out. And it's the same with God. And so don't you ever feel that? Don't you want people to, to, to not just tell you God is good? Look, don't just tell me. Convince me. Show me. Tell me in the particulars. I want to know it. I want to feel it. 
And so that's what's going on. The psalmist continues, and he's trying to convince us. And he begins to describe God's splendor and majesty. Essentially, he's describing God's glory, God's beauty. He says in the second half of verse 1, You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Now, maybe you've noticed that an interesting thing is taking place here. What began is God, you are great, and he ascribes splendor and majesty to God, turns into a discussion about light, about the heavens. And it continues, he lays the beams of his chambers, that's sunlight, the rays of the sun, he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. So now we've gone from talking about God's greatness to talking about his housing, his chambers, his chariot, his servants, right? the messengers of his court. But in a way, we're not even really talking about those things, are we? Right? We're talking about sunlight, clouds, the wind, fire. So by the end of this section, you're asking yourself, wait, are we talking about the heavens, the sunlight, the clouds, or are we talking about God's glory? You see, but that's just the point. The psalmist says, do you know how I know God is glorious? Do you know where I behold his glory? It's in the heavens. It's in the sunlight, in the clouds. It's the beauty of creation that does, in fact, reveal to us God's beauty. And to put it more bluntly, the beauty of creation is God's beauty. One commentator says this. It's quite simple. He says, everywhere we look in the world around, we should see God. And Calvin mentions something similar. Uh, He, commenting on this passage, he says, those who seek to see him in his naked majesty are very foolish. Right? Basically, you can't see God directly. You can't see his very essence. He is infinite. We're finite. Right? He is eternal. We exist in time. He is invisible. We live by sight. And so, you know, we're stuck in this situation of being creatures. And Calvin says that we may enjoy the sight of him, he must come forth to view in his clothing. That is to say, we must cast our eyes upon the very beautiful fabric of the world in which he wishes to be seen by us. Vincent van Gogh, the Dutch painter from the 19th century, uh, you may know him by his painting The Starry Night. He was a post-impressionist painter. He was also a Christian, and he said this. He says, I cannot help thinking that the best way of knowing God is to love many things. It's to love many things. Now, this isn't pantheism, right? He's not saying God or all things are part of the divine, all things are God. He's simply reflecting on Genesis 1, where God looks at all he's made, and he evaluates it, and what does he say? Or what does the text say that, that, he, that he thinks? He says, it's, the text says he saw it, and it was very good. He saw that it was very good. And if God says his creation is good, it's okay for us to say it's good. It's okay for us to agree with him, to enjoy that creation. 
Because what is created beauty and created goodness except a reflection of God's beauty and goodness? And this is why Paul, he says in Romans 1, that all men will be held accountable to God on the day of judgment. Have you ever been in conversation with someone, with a non-believer, and you ask them, hey, why don't you believe? What's, what's the rub for you? And they say, look, I've never seen God. He's never showed up. If he would just show up, right, then I would believe. And the thing is, on the day of judgment, Paul says, that's not going to fly. And here's uh, what he says, starting in verse 19. He says, what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. Now listen to this. He says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. How? In the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And see, this is where idolatry sets in. Failing to recognize creation for what it really is, and that is God's creation. So the glory of creation is only a picture of God's glory. If you want to see God, learn to see his glory, which is displayed all around you. As the angels around God's throne declare in Isaiah's vision, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And as Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The earth doesn't declare its own glory. It's full of God's glory. And so God invites us to behold him and to delight in him as we behold the beauty of his creation. That's the first point this morning. And the second point uh, is this. God invites us to behold him in the provision of creation. God invites us to behold him in the provision of creation. Now, <clears throat> there's so much uh, we can unfold in this psalm. And sadly, we're just not going to say all that can be said. And we're not going to reread every verse. Uh, but here's a very basic summary, and it's in two parts. It's incomplete. It's a summary. But essentially, God reveals himself to us. He reveals his glory in creation. And secondly, what the psalm is saying is that God creates the perfect habitation for his creatures. And not only that, but he daily provides for those creatures. He daily provides. And on this second point, I want us to see that God's love permeates his creation. It's everywhere. Now, how so? Well, put simply, God, in this psalm, we see he makes his creation glad. He causes his creation to rejoice. Now, this truth is sort of indirectly expressed in a number of ways, but it's also more uh, directly expressed in a few verses located in the middle of the psalm. In verse 13, the psalmist says, The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. Why? Well, here in this verse, it's because God provides the earth and earth creatures with water. And then in verses 14 and 15, through that water, God causes the plants to grow. And we see that man's cultivation of the plants is God's intended design. Intended design. And God's design 
has an end game, and it's this. The text says, food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Now, those things are all gifts intended for our pleasure. And they're simple things, and they're so simple that I think we often find ourselves asking, could they really be from God? Aren't those just sort of routine facts of life, right? Water, food, bread. Part of why uh, it's so hard for us to appreciate God's presence and activity all around us is because we live in a post-Enlightenment, post-Darwinian age. You and I were conditioned by our time and the culture we live in to view the earth and everything on it, everything in it, as indifferent facts of life. Things just are the way they are, right? And we understand uh, how the world works. It's simple cause and effect. Take the water cycle. How does it work? Well, water evaporates from the ocean, condenses higher up, comes down in water droplets, runs back to the ocean, and then the process starts all over again, right? But here's what our psalm tells us. Every time you turn on the faucet, that water isn't just from the water cycle. In a very real way, it's from God. That water is from God. And in the end, it is nothing, nothing less than a gift of his goodness and love. Every time you and I have a glass of water to drink, God himself is taking care of us. Did you drink water yesterday? Have you had a glass of water today? Then know this. God loves you. God loves you. Now, I know the temptation some of you are feeling. It's to say, look, I know all things ultimately come from God. But come on, water, right? We all drink it. It's everywhere. It's just this fact of life. Are we really going to say it's from God? And here's the answer from God's word. Yes. Yes, it is. It really is a form of God's love, not only to Christians, but to every person. And it can be hard for us affluent Americans to realize this truth uh, because we're never really out of water. We're not in a situation where, where water is uh, a precious resource. But in many places in the world, water is the most precious resource. It's scarce and it's fought over. So it might be hard for us to see it, but according to Scripture, even water is a form of God's love. In the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 5, Jesus says, God loves everyone, including his enemies, and you know how I know? He sends rain on the just and the unjust. That's how God loves people. He sends rain. He sends water. He causes the plants to grow. So every time you go to the supermarket, every time you sit down for a meal, know that it's not your wallet that's providing. It's not your well-paying job, ultimately, that's providing. It's God. He provides. He loves you. And we see that he provides not only to sustain our lives, but again, he provides good things for our pleasure, for our enjoyment. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas, they're in Lystra, and they heal a man, and the people who see it, they, they rush to worship uh, Paul and Barnabas. And they say, look, no, no, no. This isn't from us. It's from God, right? Everything comes uh, from God. And they start talking about God, and they say, look, there's only one God. And here's the actual words of verse 17. They say, 
he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So there it is. God unashamedly desires to satisfy the human heart with gladness through his earthly gifts. And so there's a question put to you in the second point, and it's this. Can you discern God's love in the way that he provides for your daily needs and your daily pleasures? Do you actually see his love in those things? And now, uh, we need to be careful here because when we talk about enjoying created things, there's traps and pitfalls on every side, right? Because here's what we're prone to do. We're prone to either make idols of creation or to demonize creation, right? Or to put it less harshly, to devalue creation. When we idolize created things, we basically say, look, I won't be content until I have this thing. Unless I can lay, lay hold of this one thing, I will not be happy. And there's many forms of it. We covet what our neighbor has. We says, hey, look, he has that. I want it, right? And we become jealous and envious. Uh, and we acquire things in excess, right? And that we're especially prone to that. If you hear something from me this morning, don't hear, go out and buy that new toy. This psalm isn't necessarily saying, uh, go hoard things on earth for your enjoyment. It's saying that, look, the simple things in life and the grand things, everything comes from God. And as Paul says, look, I've learned to be content in every situation, in abundance or in lack, right? He's learned to be content. And so it, it's, this isn't about acquiring. This is about enjoying what you do have. Uh, but we can also demonize creation, um, demonize creation or devalue, as I said. And I want to camp here for just a moment because for Christians, this is a, a complex deal, right? Because there are many verses in Scripture, many passages in Scripture, and maybe some of you are thinking of them right now, that uh, seem to uh, say something contrary to the vision of our psalm, right? One of these uh, texts is in 1 John chapter 2. The Apostle John writes, do not love the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And so in some places, it can seem like Scripture encourages us to put on horse blinders, right? Don't enjoy earthly pleasures. Just read my Bible, say my prayers, make disciples. That's all God really cares about. And so, Christians, we can often appear as the no fun, you know, fuddy duddies, party poopers. We rain on people's joyful parades. Um, yeah. Uh, and I'm, I've been prone to this in my own life. So, if, if you have what I'll call um, anti world passages in mind, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, I'd encourage you to think twice about those passages. See, John says, all that is in the world is not from the Father. Now, let's pause and ask a simple question. Is John really saying that the birds, the fish, the animals, that human beings aren't from God? No, of course he's not saying that. He's not saying created things are not from God. They're bad. Don't enjoy them. He's speaking of the world and its sinful opposition against God. 
The world, which is in rebellion, as Roman speaks of, elevates creation above the creator. This is what he means by the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. Okay, and this is Adam and Eve saying, the fruit looks good. I'm going to take the fruit over God. So, John's not saying, and I think you'll find that this assessment is basically true for all the passages that seem to sort of say, beware of the world. He's not saying, don't enjoy earthly pleasures. Instead, if you were to spell it out with more words, he might say, don't enjoy earthly pleasures as anything less than gifts which are given to you by God, and enjoy them in the way in which God has taught you to enjoy them. And we're not going to dive into the discussion of, you know, all, we, we can mess up in all sorts of ways, and God's law gives us healthy parameters to understand how we're to interact with his good things without abusing or misusing them. Um, but returning to our point, we can either idolize or devalue creation. And the problem in both cases is really the same. In both instances, we're separating creation from the creator. In idolatry, we separate creation from the creator by elevating creation above God. Rather than creation being an expression of God's love, we pursue creation as an end in itself. We're not after the giver, we're after his gifts. In devaluing creation, I said I've been particularly prone to this myself, we separate creation from the creator by basically saying, this creation, it's no good. It's only a trap. We should shun it. We should take that piece of mail, and not realizing it's from God, we write, return to sender. And all the while, God is saying, no, I'm trying to bless you. Don't treat my gifts as worthless. These good things, they're from me. Don't reject them. See, in both instances, we separate the gift of creation from God, the giver of creation. And so the solution is simple. It may not always be easy, but it's simple, and it's this. When you look at creation, when you enjoy creation, recognize it for what it truly is. With Psalm 104, recognize that it is a gift of God's love and give him thanks. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes, and I wish we had more time to look at this passage. We're not going to be able to, but Paul writes, every created, uh, every created, everything created, sorry, by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. The solution is to receive and give thanks. God reveals himself to us, and he invites us to behold his love for us in the provision of creation. And that's the second point. And now, finally, we'll briefly address this third point, which is this. God God reveals himself to us in the hope of creation, in the hope of creation. As the psalm comes to a close, the psalmist says in verse 31, May the glory of Yahweh endure forever. May Yahweh rejoice in his works. The psalmist understands that God's works are glorious, so much so that Yahweh himself rejoices in them. And why? Again, it's because they're nothing less than expressions of his own glory, of his own worth. But you and I, right, as we've been discussing, we struggle so much to view things in the same way. 
to look around at creation, and then with the psalmist to worship. Verses 33 and 34, after surveying everything, the psalmist says, I will sing to Yahweh as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in Yahweh. The psalmist looks around and says, man, God is good, and I have to sing about it. But you and I, we live in this world. We see God's beauty all around us. We see his good gifts daily, and yet so often we fail to rejoice. We fail to give him thanks. We fail to worship. So what does that mean? In this psalm, it should mean, it should mean, according to the psalmist, that we're the sinners mentioned in verse 35. The psalmist says, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Right? You and I, we sin, right? We sin. We fail to join in the worship of the psalm. Why aren't we counted as sinners? Why aren't we going to be consumed from the earth? See, if you've trusted in Christ and hidden yourself in him, though you may have worshipped God's creation, though you may have devalued God's creation, trampled on God's creation, the wonderful truth is this. By faith, you are clothed in Christ, and you are no longer labeled as an idolatrous sinner. In Christ's death, God took our record of idolatry, which Colossians calls our record of debt, God took that record which condemns us and he set it aside, the text says. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. And in exchange, out of his unfathomable grace, though you and I did nothing, God looks at us as if we have lived Christ's perfect life. And Christ, when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness three times, and two of those times, if not all three, were very explicit temptations to choose creation, to worship creation over the creator. And when he was tempted, Christ stood strong. He dismissed Satan, saying, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so now, thanks to Christ, you and I were counted not as the wicked sinners of verse 35, but as those who have worshiped and served God alone. And ultimately, Here's what that means for us. It means that one day, when God comes to restore all things, when he comes bringing with him the new heavens and the new earth, not only will you get to dwell in a new, new creation, a perfect creation, which fully displays God's glory in a way that we cannot even begin to imagine in this life, but at the center of it all, you will get to see God himself. The glory of creation and the glory of God will unmistakably be one and the same. In Revelation 22, John writes of this new creation and he says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name... And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever.
So brothers and sisters, we have reason to worship. And it's this. Both in this life and the next, God reveals himself to us. He wants to be seen by us. And he shows himself to us. Will you see it? Let's pray.